0: And welcome to yet another anime podcast. Just who the hell do I think I am? I'm Ninzboy, Boy, and I'm yet another anime podcast host. Now before we kick off the show proper, and uh, sorry to start on a bit of a downer, but I gotta pay respects to Kentara Miura Sensei, manga the manga behind the series Berserk, uh, who passed away earlier this month at age fifty four, and they just recently made the announcement about his passing. Uh, while I can't say I am personally fully caught up with the series, uh, I'd have read, you know many chapters of Berserk, and without a doubt, he's his influence on so many other artists and anime fans, including myself, uh, with his storytelling and his art um, is just. So immense that I just got to, you know, start off the so paying respects to him. So rest in peace, uh, Miura Sensei. Okay, moving on, as I promised last week, I'm going to be kicking off a series this episode uh, where I'm looking at Studio Ghibli films uh, because for some reason I'm someone who has an anime podcast who has a shockingly low number of these classics on my watch li- on my completed list. Um, now, before we get into that though, I do also owe you guys a bit of an update on how my seasonal anime watching is going. Uh, as I mentioned last episode, I was a bit burned out on watching media in general after the Oscars death race, uh, so I needed to catch up on the seasonal shows. Um, you Given that there's a lot on the table right, on my plate right now, um, I can't really be doing 15 to 20 so's like I did last season uh, during the winter, so I'm going to need a little bit more judicious and a little bit more um, willing to cut sows a little bit, so I'm limiting myself to my 12 normal sows, maybe even a little bit less. After checking in on episode 2 in a lot of series, I mostly narrowed it down and have caught up on a couple of sows. The full-length ones I'm keeping up with are Odd Taxi, To Your Eternity, Higahiro, Super Cub, Zombieland Saga of Events, um, uh, The Spider Isekai, SSSS Dinozenon, My Hero Academia Season 5, 86, and Vivi Fluorite Eyes Saga. And in addition, I'm also watching the sorts, uh, Yakinara Mug Cup Mo. Uh technically this could be a full-length a full se- a, a full-length show, but I haven't watched any of the live-action stuff yet. Um, D4DJ Petite Mix, Gloomy Naughty Grizzly, and Maiko-san Chi no Kamenai-san, which is a full-length series, but it only airs once a month, so uh, it doesn't really count. Now there were a number of shows I had previewed, uh, uh, and I honestly had a bit of a hard time cutting it down to to just these shows. Um, Mostly, you know, a lot of shows had a reason for me to continue on, to want to continue on, and be interested in. Um, As such, I made judicious use of the uh, on hold categorization on my anime list and put the following shows on hiatus, uh, with the hope that I can find some time to binge and catch up with them. Um, In order of how lucky I am to do that, um, we have Slime Diaries, uh, Back Arrow. Bakuten, uh, Burning Kabaddi, and Sayonara, Watashi no Kramer. I spent 300 years killing slime and maxed out my level. Sado's House, The World Ends With You, Uh, Tokyo Revengers, Juran, Princess of Snow and Blood, and Saint's Power is Omnipotent. Um, And then there were also some shows that I ended up dropping after confirming the second episode wasn't fixing the issues I had with the first. Um, These are Battle Athletis Restart, Combatants Will Be Dispatched, Dragon House Hunting, Full Dive RPG Is Crappier Than Real Life, Mars Red, and Pretty Boy Detective Club. So, yeah, that's where my current uh, spring 2021 anime watching is at. I haven't even touched the various Netflix series yet. yet, Yasuke and we have Tressa coming up in a couple of weeks, but that's an episode for another time. Uh, We've got to get to talking about a studio Ghibli and one Isao Takahada. Now, Studio Ghibli is certainly well-known even outside the anime community, primarily due to the works of director Hayao Miyazaki, such as My Neighbor Totoro, Spirit of the Way, Princess Mononoke, House Moving Castle, and many, many more. And while for many, Miyazaki is pretty much synonymous with the studio, um, he is in fact only one of three co-founders of the studio, uh, one being producer Suzuki and the other being direct, uh, director Isao Takahata. Now, Miyazaki-sensei may have you know, produced about twice as many feature films as Takahata has, but I believe that Takahata's influence on the studio is just as, if not even more important uh, than what Miyazaki has done. Okay, maybe that's a bit of hyperbolic, but hey, I gotta get in one clickbait title, uh, one clickbait statement every episode. So, Isao Takahada, he was born in 1935 in Mia Prefecture as the youngest of seven children. Uh, This puts him at the age where he actually survived a U.S. air raid on Okoyama City during World War II when he was only nine years old. Uh, He ended up going to the University of Tokyo and graduated in 1959 with a degree in French literature, uh, which you can see his appreciation for literature and especially poetry, specifically that of the poet Basho, throughout his many works. Uh, He was inspired to leap into the world of animation after seeing the 1952 French animated film *Le Roi et Lucio* or *The King and the Mockingbird* from director Paul Grimault, um, though this version was unfinished at the time and would be finished later in 1983. Uh, Paul Grimault would go on to be a huge influence on Takahata, as with other French New Wave film directors such as Jean-Luc Godard and the Canadian animator Frederick Bach. Uh, in addition, Takahata was inspired by the ability of animation to juxtapose humor, vibrant colors, and unique perspectives other mediums could not. Get um, against commentary of the modern world through symbolism. I'll link in the show notes a discussion from the British Film Institute on his thoughts of The King and the Mockingbird, um, and kind of to get his perspective on why it's so influential on him. In addition, Takahata was inspired by the art technique of trompe part uh, pardon my terrible French pronunciation, I think that's the last one this episode. Um, essentially, it's the creating the illusion of three dimensions uh, within a two-dimensional space, um, similar to a you know, force perspective in architecture. Again, Takahata credits Grimmauld for inspiring him to really make use of the vertical space in the animation, and you can really see this in how he tries to use the canvas of animation uh, to, create, to create these worlds. Now, all that being said, Takahata was not a visual artist himself by trade. He studied French literature, after all, and he was more interested in using animation as a medium for sharing stories uh, and ideas rather than the art form itself, if that makes sense. Um, this is something that would reoccur throughout his and the rest of Studio Ghibli's works. Um, he was a bit of an environmentalist as well as a communist and pacifist sympathizer, and those themes come out often in his work, with oftentimes many films, uh, you know, kind of praising, subtly, um, living a communal, rural lifestyle. We'll we'll get those when we talk to the films later. Um, To that end, he was recommended, uh, to that end, you know, the end of his wanting to use animation as a medium, uh, he was recommended to apply to Toei Animation, where he passed away an exam and debuted as an assistant director. His debut TV directorial work was Wolf Boy Ken, um, an 86-episode TV series that ran from 1963 to 1965 about a boy who was raised by wolves in the jungle, which was known for having a higher frames per second than usual at the time, kind of hinting at his trying to push the boundaries of what animation could do. Uh, His mentor at the studio was legendary animator Yasuo Otsuka, and after several years of working at Toei, uh, Otsuka gave Takahata the chance to direct his own movie, uh, which would end up being The Great Adventures of Horus, Prince of the Sun, which came out in 1968. Now, despite the name, Horus is not about the Egyptian god, but rather about a Norwegian boy whose name from the Japanese, uh, could be translated to Holes. Um, it was released in the, the West as Little Prince uh, Valiant. Uh, the story was adapted from a puppet play by screenwriter Kazuo Fukuzawa, uh, who in turn was inspired by an adapt- who was adapting an epic from the oral tradition of the Ainu people. Uh, this wouldn't be the first uh, you know, classic uh, literature folk tale that, that Takahata would adapt. Um, in my research, I found conflicting reasons for why they decided to set the story in Scandinavia instead of the original Northern Japan region um, some sources say that they wanted the story to be seen as something not J- Japan-specific, while others said that they wanted to avoid controversy of depicting the Ainu people in a certain way as much as possible. Um, whatever the case, the story, which follows the titular Holes um, or Horus, as he battles with the Ice Demon's Grindelwald to save his friend Hilda, um, and an, an adapted village definitely has hints of Takahata's more progressive utopian ideals. Um, again, the village in question definitely has a socialist, good-of-the-village feel to it, um, and the final call to forge the Sun Sword Requires everyone in the village to work together, like a, you know, it def- reflects the pro labor sentiments of Takahata. Uh, while actually, which actually, this also trickled down to the production of the film itself. Uh, reportedly, the entire team was often involved in storyboarding and producing, uh, providing ideas for the film, uh, which led to the production of the film uh, uh, being especially delayed. Um, the average at the time for a movie of this length would have been about eight to ten months or so, um, but this film took three years to complete. Part of this was due to the creator's perfectionism when it came to the final product, and as such, uh, while the film had critical success about, upon being released, especially the younger pro-labor um, you know, youth, um, it you know, ultimately ended up uh, receiving a release of about 10 days or so in theaters before being pulled um, and as such it was just not profitable for toei animation whatsoever uh, while I can't say it completely holds up as a standalone film compared to modern anime or even a- animated films in general uh, it definitely warrants watching as a chapter of not only Takahata's development as a character uh, as a director but also the evolution of animation over time um, they are particularly seen that you know again because they put, spent so much time at the time this was groundbreaking. It was compared even favorably to Disney for what it could do in animation. Um, in fact, you know, in, in addition to this being kind of Takahata's de- debut work, this also marks another important landmark in his career. Um, this is the film movie the first time Takahata and Miyazaki uh, would end up working together on the project, uh, with both of them being Toei employees at the time, and Miyazaki being brought on as a key animator and scene designer. So, after the financial flop of Horus, Takahata and Miyazaki both decided to leave Toei as they could see that there wasn't really a chance for them to direct any further since the film wasn't profitable. Um, they continued to collaborate, pitching a Pippi Longstocking adaptation that fell through, uh, helping their mentor Otsuka on the series Lupin the Third, and making a sort of film, Panda Gogo Go Panda, for TMS. And then, in the mid-70s, Takahata and Miyazaki started working on the anime of Heidi of the Alps, uh, which would lead to them joining Nippon Animation to produce the influential World Masterpiece Theater, adapting stories from around the world into anime form, including, for Takahata, uh, The Blog of Flanders and Anne of Green Gables. Uh, Takahata would, in the early 80s, also work on a few other series and films for TMS as well. Um, now, parallel to this, Miyazaki was having his own directorial debut with Count of Cagliostro and later the film adaptation of, the ma- of his own manga, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which is produced by Studio Topcraft. Uh, shortly after, Studio Topcraft would go bankrupt and Miyazaki, as well as producer Tosio Suzuki, would buy out the studio and bring on Takahata as a co-founder, rebranding it into Studio Ghibli in 1985. So after the studio's debut work of Laputa Castle in the Sky uh, from Miyazaki in 1986, uh, they followed it up with a double feature release in 1988 uh, of Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro paired with Takahata's Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, We'll talk about Totoro when we get to the Miyazaki episode, but for now let's talk about Grave of the Fireflies, which you gotta admit was a bit of a total whiplash uh, going from Totoro to Grave of the Fireflies when it came out in the double feature, but that aside. So, side note, uh, I actually started this series because I had gotten subscription to HBO Max for the Oscar season to watch This and the Black Messiah. Um, I was thinking of canceling the service since I don't really use it as much, um, and figured I might as well, before doing that, watch all of the Ghibli films they have on there. However, it turns out that Grave of the Fireflies is the only one of those films not on HBO Max. Uh, side note to the side note, Horace technically isn't there either, but it's on the Ghibli film per se, and it's actually available on Amazon Prime. Um, The reason for this is that Grave of the Fireflies is actually an adaptation of a semi-autobiographical short story published by Sinochosa Publishing, written in 1967 by Akiyuki Nosaka. Um, from, its founding in in, uh, from its founding in 1985 through 2005, uh, Studio Ghibli was technically a subsidiary of Tokuma Soten, a publishing company that, produce Suzuki, that producer Suzuki-san had uh, connections to. As such, Tokuma Soten is the one who held the distribution rights for, the, for Studio Ghibli Films, and they were the ones who actually brokered that deal uh, with Disney that allowed them to distribute here in the West. However, as Grave of the Fireflies, the story, uh, was a derivative work from another publisher, uh, it was not actually part of that Tokuma Sotan deal, hence why it actually is not on HBO Max, since presumably the HBO Max studio Jibby collection uh, was part of that particular deal. Uh, anyway, that all being said, Grave of the Fireflies was actually the one Takahata work I had seen prior to starting this project, back in 2017 uh, on a plane trip on my way to Azo to visit some family. So it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but it's also one of those films that's amazingly well done, but the subject matter is just so heavy that you really don't want to see it again, so unfortunately I didn't really rewatch it for this pro- for this episode. Obviously, the film does adapt a pre-existing short story, chronicling the author's experience of surviving the firebombing of Kobe during World War II and the death of his sister in the aftermath due to starvation, but Takahata sensei again brought his own personal experience of surviving the air raid on Okayama to the production as well. Uh, while many see the film as anti-war, after all, having seen the effects of war on the two innocent children would turn anyone's heart against war. Interestingly, Takahata has said that he doesn't see it as an inherently anti-war film, but instead prefers to focus on the story of the two siblings who live apart from society. In the aftermath of the film, um, in, a, in, a, in a mix of enjoying their days together, while also uh, how being apart from society is what uh, led to their suffering through isolation. Um, he doesn't necessarily. He apparently is quoted as not believing that uh, depicting suffering from war would actually prevent such hostilities in the future. I'll also link to a video essay from Kevin Nya about Grave of the Fireflies that I really liked in doing my research about the other themes of the film. Uh, from a production perspective, Grave of the Fireflies is definitely on the in the Ghibli, what I call the Ghibli House style. Uh, you know, fully fleshed out backgrounds. Um, you know that that very round-cheeked, uh character design um, more so than any other of Takahata's works. Um, partly because the production schedule didn't really allow for much experimentation. To be honest, um, you know the most we had seen perhaps uh, is. In, in, in experimentation is that the illustration the outlines done here were done in brown instead of black, uh, which really hadn't been done in the industry up to that point since brown doesn't contrast against other colors as much, but overall would lend the film a more natural and uh, softer look to it. Anyway, moving on to his next work. In 1991, Takahata's next directorial feature, Only Yesterday, was released. Um, now, This one's probably my least favorite of his films. Um, I wouldn't say it's bad per se, Perhaps I just wasn't in the mood for this film at that time. Um, I, I granted I was watching all of these kind of late in bed, before, right before bed. Um, and I ended up dozing off in the middle of this one while watching it, uh, partly due to its pacing, um, which. To be fair, in other Takahata works uh, are kind of a trademark of what he does best in depicting reality, but in any case, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but you know, one of Takahata's trademarks is how his films portray stories that otherwise could be done in live action based on their content, but in their structure and emotive expression couldn't be done in anything else but animation, um, again, hearkening back to his influence from French directors. Uh, Only Yesterday tells the parallel stories of Takeo, a 27-year-old office lady from Tokyo who spends her time off going to the countryside to work on a farm and take in the rural life, um, alongside her reminiscing about her 10-year-old self um, as if it were only yesterday. Um, again, this is another adaptation actually, adapting a manga of the same name by Hotaru Okamoto and Yukutone. Uh, this one actually was brought to Takahada by Miyazaki, who had found the manga at first, as but Miyazaki didn't think that he would be able to adapt it properly. Um, the adult portions of the films were actually anime original uh, and used as a framing device for the child portions of the manga. Um, the film was itself a surprise uh, financial success, drawing in a large o- adult audience for a Realistic drama and was the top grossing Japanese film of that year. Production wise, again, this one has some bit of experimentation in it. Um, normally in anime, the film, is, the, the, The scenes are animated first, um, and then voice actors come in later to do their best to match the mouth movements. However, here, Takahata had the adult uh, portions recorded first, um, and they animated to the tape, um, the opposite of the normal process. Um, In fact, they also used footage of the recordings to more accurately animate the facial muscles of the characters, which, frankly, I found a little bit off-putting when I saw it the first time, given the way that the cheeks would move around. Um, But regardless... um, The child portions were filmed and recorded or animated and recorded uh, in the normal order for anime, um, leading to a slight contrast between the two. Another contrast comes from the background work of both portions. Uh, the adult portions are much more in the Ghibli house style, um, including the detailed backgrounds while the child portions are a bit less detailed and more uh, pastel and washed out in color saturation um, as well as features more segments that can only happen in animation, you know mostly about like flights of fancy and whatnot, reinforcing the idea that these are recollections and not strictly a documentary depiction of what happened in the past. Um, and again these were the child portions are a little bit more true to the manga style. Uh, Thematically, we also see Takeo grow to love the countryside life and communal nature of it, Um, again, harkening back to Takahata's personal values. Um, In addition, you also see, as in his next work, an appreciation for a life of harmony with nature. Um, I'll link to a a video essay by replay value about only yesterday to better elaborate uh, on what I really enjoyed about this film. Now, Takahata's next project, Pom Poko, uh, released in 1994, and is the first of his works that I can find that actually was not actually an adaptation of some other pre-existing story, but his own original work. Now, yeah, it does get a little bit of reparing the weird Studio Ghibli film um, uh, spoilers, but the Tanuki here used their testicles to parachute into battle with riot police and then attempt to crush said riot police uh, with said testicles. Um, That all being said, this is actually the first of Studio Ghibli's films to receive some sort of recognition from, you know, uh, for, well, not the first, but to receive a recognition from the Oscars, uh, being the Japanese submission for Best International Film for that year, even though it was not selected for the final uh, nominees. Um, This is before even Miyazaki got recognized for the same honor with uh, Princess Mononoke in 1997. In any case, Pompoko, named after the onomatopoeia of tanuki drumming on their tummies, tells the story of a group of set of transforming raccoon dogs who uh, face the destruction of their habitat as humans expand into their hills and forests, and they try to fight back in a number of ways. Uh, these range from the aforementioned testicular attacks on riot police, to inconveniencing, inconvenient pranks, to lethal accidents, uh, which is kind of brushed over on the work site, uh, to taking the form of various Japanese yokai and trying to scare the humans into respecting them nature. Ultimately, spoilers, uh, the efforts fall short as human progress is inevitable and these tanuki who can transform are forced to take on human form to live among us, um, ending in a very direct plea into the camera to please consider wildlife who might not be able to be so fortunate as to transform when doing this development. Now, notably, this is the first Ghibli film to start using CG effects, uh, which frankly I didn't even realize until I did my research for this. Um, Takahata had wanted to do a film about the, t- the Tale of Heike, um, a war epic from the 12th century Japan, which is referenced in the film and very Takahata, uh, but ultimately he had adapted it to tell the story of Tanuki um, after the suggestion of Miyazaki. Um, I think there's something about Miyazaki's film Porcoroso being a pig, leading to the next logical conclusion being Studio Ghibli making a film about Tanuki. Um, apparently, also, The various Tanuki all reflect people who Miyazaki and Takahata had worked with at Toei Animation, uh, with the aggressive Gonta being based on Miyazaki himself, um, and Tsukichi uh, based on uh, Takahata, and the respective Tanuki wives being on their real life human wives. Um, This one again puts Takahata's environmental values on display front and center. Um, The film also is perhaps the most fantastical of Takahata's to date, Um, though in contrast to Miyazaki's works, uh, which all take place in an explicitly fantastical world, there is still some grounding in the human world in this one. Uh, Frankly, I think this film is grossly underrated, and I found it extremely charming and well-paced throughout. Um, Also, the use of score and music throughout is utterly captivating, as are the crowd shots of the tanuki in various stages of transformation from fully realistic to almost toon-force-like comical. Now, it will be another five years before Takahata's next directorial film, uh, with a very distinct look, uh, perhaps the most unique of any Studio Ghibli film, uh, My Neighbors the Yamadas. It's known for perhaps its unique newspaper comic style, as much as it is for its non-standard narrative structure. Uh, it's based on the four-koma manga Nono-chan by Hisachi Ishii that features, predictably enough, the, ke- the antics of the Yamada family, salaryman father Takashi, housewife Machuko, junior high school brother Noboru, grandmother Sige, and the manga main character, third-grader sister Nonoko. Oh, and of course, their dog, Puchi. Um, While the manga focuses eventually on Nono predominantly, Takata's film spreads the love among all five family members, and in fact, in my view, perhaps even focuses a little bit more on the parents and their particular relationship uh, and what marriage is for them. Um... Now, the film is a series of vignettes about daily life in the Yamada household, often focusing on the, mm, shall we call them, character flaws uh, of each of the family members. Uh, this is the ultimate slice-of-life anime, as it literally is just slices of these characters' daily lives, very little, uh, you know, embellishment or, you know, uh, supernatural things happening here, or even, you know, uh, overly exaggerated reactions. These are all very realistic things that, you know, normal people would do. Um, no. Here, Takahata is taking the vignettes from only yesterday and removing the framing device of a central narrative overall with a little sense of continuity. Um, You could probably reorder the vignettes in any random order and it'd just be as impactful. Again, part of the reason this film stands out is its watercolor, newspaper, comic style meant to emulate the manga it's based on, as well as the play of the unique character designs that wouldn't have worked in the Ghibli house style. In order to accomplish this, Studio Ghibli and Takahata actually switched over their entire production process from a traditional, self-painting animation process to a fully digital pipeline, making it the first Ghibli film to produce entirely on computers. You can see other elements of Takahata's style here, where relative to other Ghibli films, there is less emphasis on the environment and setting uh, and background, and more so on the characters. I think part of talk, uh, Yamada's, the Yamada family's appeal is that they reflect back to the audience very realistic emotions and situations we may or may not have found ourselves in, or at the very least are t- tangential to. Um, there may not be a plot per se, but then again, in life, is there a plot? Um, and we focus on that emotional resonance of, oh yeah, I've been there, this is something uh, that I've lived through by stepping away all to disney lush background art and character design in ghibli films he's able to hone in on that feeling don't get me wrong the animation is still incredible but it but it serves to it serves the narrative as opposed to stealing the limelight to some degree now After My Neighbor's Diomedes, Takahata went on a 14-year hiatus until his next and, ultimately, final film, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which would come out in 2013. Uh, He did contribute to an anthology film, uh, Winter Days, around the poems of Japanese poet Basho, um, but what was Takahata up to during that 13-year time period? Uh, Well, he actually started the film sometime before 2008, when he announced that he was already underway on production. So this film was at least five years in the making at the time. Um, In fact, this film holds the record for being the highest-budgeted, most costly Japanese film of all time, with Nippon Television Chairman Seichiro Uje uh, giving 5 billion yen, or about 40 million dollars, to the project to see it to completion, because he felt it was so important to have one more Takahata film out in the world. Uh, unfortunately, Ujiya san uh, passed in 2011 before the film could be completed, uh, but he was able to see the script and some of the storyboards. Ultimately, the film would cost 49 million US dollars. So, what do we get for this highly expensive project that ultimately, box office wise, made only 27 million dollars globally? In a word, art. Now, Princess Kaguya retells a very famous Japanese folktale known as the Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, considered to be the oldest surviving form of Japanese epic tales from the Heian period. In a sense, this is Takahata going back to his roots as in his pre-Ghibli days when he adapted Western tales in the World Masterpiece Theater for Nippon Animation. In fact, he was allegedly planning to adapt the tale for Toei Animation, but that project fell through. Uh, he also based Kaguya on the Swiss tale of Heidi, uh, who he viewed as just a platonic ideal for what a child should be like. So in any case, everyone in Japan has probably heard of the story, and it's at least been referenced in so many different anime from Naruto The Sailor Moon to Musishi to Inuyasa to Kaguya-sama: Love is War. Uh, even outside of Japan, the Chinese tale of Chang'e, which was referenced in Netflix's film Over the Moon, has many similarities to of the story. So what did Takahata do to differentiate this film and make it stand out? In his words, he had read the story as a child but had problems connecting to the protagonist and it didn't really evoke any empathy in him since he didn't really know what she was feeling. Uh, In working on this project, he found that if the audience were able to more closely identify with Kaguya and what she felt, there would be a better story here, um, on top of also updating the narrative itself to better reflect modern values of feminism and well-intentioned parenting. My god, that dad the bamboo cutter character and his kind of misguided attempts at parenting just really hit me hard. Um, To that end, as with the Yamadas, he went for a non-traditional art style, or super-traditional, depending on your point of view. Um, Again, he opted to have very minimalist backgrounds and a character design that was much more flat and more closely resembled scrolls or manuscripts from that Heian time period, as if they were living paintings moving around in ink. Um, It reminds me of a lot of ways of the works of Cartoon Saloon, who made a number of Oscar-nominated films about Iris mythology, uh, including the most recent uh, Oscar nominee, Wolf Walker, in that there were particular moments when the characters seem so overcome with emotion uh, that they break the character model and turn into a living mass of ink and pencil lines and sketches. Um, All of this worked. Now, personally, I don't cry at movies much, if at all. Um, I didn't cry even at Grave of the Fireflies. But the last 10 minutes or so of this film, which, spoilers, but hey, it's a 10th century story, so not really, uh, Kaguya has to return to the moon, uh, leaving her parents behind, and I couldn't help but pause the film a few times to wipe tears away off my cheeks with a heavy pang in my chest at the way it just built up the feelings of the parents and Kaguya and not wanting to be separated over the two plus hours to completely wreck me. Uh, this does have a hap- this does not really have a happy ending, uh, which looking back, I think he'd say he's about 50-50 on Um, I know he's probably most well known for Game of the Fireflies, but honestly, I believe this film to be his true magnum opus. And sir, he didn't make the studio a money back on the production cost, but he did get international acclaim and recognition with *Tale of the Princess Kaguya netting him his first and only Oscar nomination for Best Animated Feature Film in 2014 where it lost to… Big Hero 6? Really? (sighs) Totally robbed. Okay, so by reputation, Takahata was a little bit lazier than the famously workaholic Miyazaki. He kind of had to be poked and prodded into starting a project. But yet, in his own way, once he get, did get up and running, he was just as concerned with perfectionism as in his own particular way. After all, Horace was delayed for so long due to his own brand of perfectionism, as was Kaguya-sama. Uh, I haven't seen the full documentary, you know, Isao Takahata and His Tale of the Princess Kaguya, about the making of said film, uh, but it's a whole segment about how he spent an entire day with the animators trying to understand exactly how fruit was cut after he wasn't happy about how the watermelon was cut in a scene in Grave of the Fireflies. 25 years prior, Uh, that kind of mark of artistry helps to find his works, just as much as his creative use of backgrounds, or having children singing throughout his films, or idealizing communal, rural, everyday life, or simply trying to sneak in basso and literary references as often as he possibly could into his films. Takahata Sensei would pass from lung cancer in April 2018 at the age of 82. He left behind a legacy of films that, while often overshadowed uh, in their own ways, made the most of the medium of animation. On the surface, they are all about topics, well, perhaps except Pompoco, uh, that could have just as easily been filmed in live action. But yet, because of Takahata's imagination and understanding of human emotion, through his background in literature, he crafted these so called realistic stories in a way that they could have only been done in animation. By poking and nudging at what could be done with animation, what could be added, what could be taken away, swipping away everything that wasn't necessary to fit the scene in, in question, he was able to pull out the core essence of his characters and stories and emotions. I think we, as anime fans, are all the better for it. To quote the master himself, "...I want to make sure that we don't forget the great power of lines drawn on paper to stir out imaginations and memories." Thank you so much for listening to me go on about Isao Takahada for half an hour now. Uh, I must say this past week has been quite the ride trying to post to finish all these films and consolidate my thoughts uh, while not completely going overboard and spoiling it all. Uh, and the hope and to do my due diligence on research as well. Uh, many thanks to various YouTubers and think pieces out there that I referenced to help save my thoughts, uh, since some I referenced in the episode already, but for all of those and many more will be linked in the show notes, including some by the Royal Ocean Film Society, Steve M., and Annie Mason. If I had to give a personal ranking of my favorite Takahata films, I'd probably go something like first being kaguya second uh, second Pompoko, third My Neighbor the Yamadas, fourth Grave of the Fireflies, fifth Only Yesterday, and sixth Horror's Prince of the Sun. But that's my own personal taste. Like I said, all of these can be found on HBO Max except Grave and Horror's, which is on Amazon Prime. Um, now, I probably will get around to doing an episode on Miyazaki's film at some point, as well as the other Studio Ghibli films by neither Takahata or Miyazaki. Um, that being said, it looks like some things came up and my plans to cancel my subscription for HBO Max will be delayed a little bit further. Um, so between that and Durara being pulled from Crunchyroll in a couple of weeks, I may decide to binge that instead. Uh, so those other Ghibli episodes may not come out immediately. Um, plus, the trailer for Netflix's Filipino Anime Trece just came out, and I'm super hyped for that, as uh, so you can look forward to an episode of that, most likely. Uh, in any case, I think that about does it for this episode. Let me know what your thoughts of my analysis on *Isao Takahata were, and what your favorite film by him was, and why. You can let me know on Twitter at YetAnimePod, or via email at YetAnotherAnimePodcast at gmail.com. You can follow my, my Anime list at NinjaBoy333, boy with an I, uh, will found on all the major podcast services, iTunes, Spotify, and Google. Play. Uh, Be sure to subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, share it with another anime-loving friend. If you want to more directly support the show, you can do so over on Patreon.com. Links to all of that will be in the show notes. Intro and outdoor music provided by Suichi Sakagami at Tandas.com. Editing and productions provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this episode, we air on the first and third Fridays of each month next time on yet another anime podcast. Like I said, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm hoping to do more Studio Ghibli or maybe some other topic, but we'll see. Until then, see you, Space Cowboy. Bam.